Shall we close the doors? Or oh, is sure. it okay? It's okay. A little bit of background is fine. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm here with my friend Roy Crovell. Am I pronouncing your name correctly yeah, for more Norwegian? More, more or, or less. less. Crovell would be Kruvel. the Norwegian way of saying Kruvel. Kruvel. But we would say in, in English, you say... Uh, I try to say Crovell, but Kruvel. it's... And in Spanish, what do you say? I try to say it in the same way, but it sometimes turns out to be cool. Cruel. 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 Yeah. Now, I'm, it's hard for them to say Miller and hard yeah. for them to say Toby yeah. as well. Those foreigners, they're lucky there are people like us who can interpret the world for them, really, aren't they? Uh, they are very, very polite, so they're happy <laughs> when I try to speak Spanish, although I don't speak very well. Now, Roy, uh, I'm here in your office in Oslo, and I'm looking at your screensaver image, or your screen image, which is of El Comandante, Marcos. Subcomandante. Sub. Yes. Well, yes. yes. Some call him El Comandante, but Subcomandante uh, uh, Marcos, uh, being photographed by three white men and spoken to by another white man, it looks like, yeah. uh, who are fascinated by him. Uh, yeah. He's got his ski mask on, he's got his pipe in his hand and his cap on. Why is this on your computer screen in your office in Oslo? Uh, may, mainly because it was taken by a good friend of mine, and if you look the other one, mm -hmm. you see a very young man to the right, 20 yep. years ago. Can you see who it is? I can indeed. Yeah. So you were there with Subcomandante Marcos. So this is taken in 1994. Yeah. And you have two guys from Stern, German magazine. <coughs> and you have Irish, what is it called, the Irish newspaper? Irish Times. Irish Times, I think. And this one is an anarchist newspaper from California. It's right. Love right. and Rage or something like that from San Francisco. So, very soon after the Zapatistas declared independence or an mm. autonomous region with the emergence of NAFTA, uh, North Atlantic, North American Free Trade Area or Tratado del Comercio Libre, you were there. Mm. I was sent by the local newspaper in, in my town, Trondheim at the time, when I Trondheim, started, yeah. uh, to cover that not a war at the time, it, had, it was a ceasefire. When mm. I came to Mexico, it was a ceasefire. But I was sent, and I was lucky enough to, to continue to work like, like that, being sent by local newspapers, you know, actually, mm. to quite a few places. Difficult to imagine now that local newspapers actually had enough funding to send someone mm. to cover conflicts in Guatemala, Colombia, to Sri Lanka, to Kurdistan, and Africa. Difficult to imagine. I did have funding to do that some 20 years ago. Wow. Yeah. That would simply not happen today. Would it happen in a conflict where Norway was directly involved, like Iraq, for example? What we see now is that many Norwegian journalists would get a scholarship from the foreign department to travel with the foreign minister. And it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. <laughs> Not quite as independent. So here, here you are with Subcomandante Marcos. Tell us about that experience of being there. Uh, well, as a, a journalist not speaking Spanish, visiting Mexico for the first time, which is quite typical for, for a foreign correspondent working like that, being sent somewhere. Um, I imagined, I imagined something else. I can't really explain what I imagined. All I knew about the Zapatistas had to do with Emiliano Zapata and things that I learned at school and the 
the image of the Mexican Revolution, stuff like that. And I read some of the communiques, so I expected something completely different. What we did find out, however, was that um, the local communities were organized in ways that we could not fully understand, and which was very different from what we have had seen before elsewhere in Guatemala or Nicaragua or Salvador. But this was really difficult to communicate to the um, to a Norwegian audience and to the Norwegian editors uh, because it did not quite fit with what the newspapers expected or possibly wanted. So it turned out that many of the stories we told at that time was about this fascinating subcommandante Marcos and his philosophies and, and all that stuff while the other story about the indigenous peoples came in the background. It was, for me personally, as a young man, as a wonderful experience. So, when you say that your, expect, your own expectations were somewhat confounded, because they were based in Zapata, Villa, and so mm. on, these heroes of the Mexican Revolution, as you say, what did you expect to find? I, well, I, I seen movies, I read books about it. Emiliano Zapata and Pancho Villa and, and the Mexican Revolution. I read books about John Reed, of course. Mm. I've seen reads about John Reed going to, to uh, the Soviet Union. And I sort of had my ideas based on that type of long-distance solidarity experience, if you understand what I mean. Um, so I had really um, not the knowledge necessary to actually understand what was going on. So, the, were the indigenous people, when you got there, more a focus than you expected, or was Marcos's personality and charisma more a focus than you expected? Um, during the first few months, Marcos's personality was the focus, definitely, and I think all the journalists were initially, initially um, surprised by him, and fascinated by him, and it was a media story that fitted also very well with what the uh, audience wanted to hear. Mm. Right? So it was quite strong, no doubt. But this became also a problem for the, for the indigenous movement and for the Zapatistas themselves, of course, because um, what they saw as their leg legitimacy, the reasons for the uprising, was not a strong leader being able to speak eloquently in political terms, but they saw themselves as something different, as something very democratic, building on indigenous cultures. So there was a conflict between having such a spokesperson and the reality they actually wanted to project onto the media. And how did you learn that from them? Um, how did I learn that? I think, well, actually, they, they began to tell, tell us mm. these things. Um, for a while, um, Subcommandante Marcus, and still, sometimes, refused to make interviews, to give interviews. Mm. And the second thing we discovered was that they had something like 20 or 30 at the time, commandantes, mm. indigenous people. So when journalists began to find out those things, they, they, or we also became fascinated by figures like Comandante Ramona, mm. a female 
career leader with little education but still extremely capable and 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 another different stories began to emerge i think it was actually necessary for the indigenous leaders to explain these things to to visiting journalists mm. and they did so in spanish through translators or we did so in indigenous languages through translators um that varies but i all the commandantes as far as i know speak very good spanish and no problem explaining it right so but also marcos of course he speaks several languages yeah, yeah. so they had like, possibility of explaining it to, to all the journalists what do you think was and is today still the fascination that wealthy white countries and leftists within them have with this rebellion or autonomy movement or independence movement, whatever we call it? Why has it caught the imagination for two decades by contrast with many, many, many other very important movements in Latin America alone, quite apart from other countries of the world. Yeah. Um, I think there's at least three or four reasons. The first one is clearly that the, the left in Europe, probably also elsewhere, had experienced in the 60s and 70s a fascination with auto authoritarian regimes in Albania, Cambodia, China, and a sort of met, met war. Mm. Um, and and you can also see that in the post-1968 movement emerging from France and elsewhere, the new philosophies, the post-structuralist movement, things like that, and a new openness, perhaps a search for um, new ways of being leftist or radical in solidarity, but without the authoritarian uh, traits, so to speak. So. First of all, I think they came at the right moment. And they also came when um, the free trade movement was at its height. You had talks about the World Trade Organization going on. Mm. You had NAFTA mm. in North America. So it came at a time when it was necessary. And it, in addition to that, in the 1980s, Leading up to 1992, 500 years since the, uh, since Columbus arrived in America and claimed to have discovered America, okay, you had a reconfiguration of the, the understanding of indigenous peoples. You can see that in Norway also. The Samis had a long struggle, and something happened around those years when, when being a Sami turned from being a problem that you needed to overcome into being something to be proud of. So I think maybe these and other things play together. That's a wonderful explanation and of course we should add that in 1968 in addition to those movements in Europe Mexico had its own uprising um, sadly culminating in the massacre in Tlatelolco Ten days before the Mexico City Olympic Games, something we were talking about last night over dinner briefly, when uh, Mexicans, inspired by many of the events of the Prague Spring and so on, were gunned down 
by government forces in what may well have been a premeditated collective attack mm. on students and others. But the 1968 was happening in Latin America too, wasn't it? Mm, definitely. And that's a very important point. And what was nominally a democracy, and it was a democracy, was an authoritarian democracy of a kind that people in Western Europe don't really understand. Mm. I think it's fair to say. Yeah. yeah. And there's a direct link between the massacres in 1968 and the Zapatistas, mm -hmm. the indigenous mm -hmm. movements. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the movement, Subcomandante Marcos, came from a movement inspired by Cuba, but that movement was organized after 1968. Subcomandante Marcos used to teach at the University of Mexico City before mm -hmm. traveling to Chiapas. So there's a direct link between those two. Things. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing to say, you mentioned the Sami people uh, here in Norway. Uh, are they only in Norway or they're in other countries other too? Other countries right? too. Yeah, yeah, Sweden, Sweden, Finland, Russia. Right. Apologies for my ignorance. But there's also happening during this period relating to the Sami, relating to the very varied indigenous peoples of Latin America, an international consciousness, both amongst them and amongst ourselves, that in some ways relates to the United Nations and the United mm -hmm. Nations attempts in the 80s and 90s in particular to construct the idea of a global indigeneity mm. and of a connectedness that in itself also relates very much to a lot of civil rights ideas from the United States from African Americans. Mm. So I think that there are those aspects as well. Yeah. And you have uh, indigenous rapporteurs to the United Nations appointed, not all of whom are indigenous, mm. Rodolfo Stavenhagen, mm. for example, during these periods, who become very important irritant voices in a more universalist discourse of politics, mm. and very important against mm. conventional ideas of democracy. And I, I, I think you've given a wonderful analysis of those times, and especially of the left moving away both from an authoritarian state socialism, but also away from the idea that class is ultimately it. Mm show yeah. that there are many yeah. other categories of oppression and self-formation and realization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, thank you for that. Now, you've, you've continued your participation in the region. How do you see the Zapatistas and Subcomandante Marcos two decades after your time there first? I, I think if, well, let's think 50 years ahead, if someone is going to write a history of Mexico, in the future. I think one of the things they will definitely have to say something about is the Zapatistas not giving in. Mm. They are still there, not a strong movement, not at all, but they still have organized communities, they still have schools, they still have presence in hundreds if not thousands of communities around Chiapas, and they still have the structures doing their work slowly, quietly, and that is actually something new in Mexico. Mm. Mm. In Chiapas, for instance, you have loads of movements and organizations, peasants' movements, peasant organizations, but typically they will all become sucked up by party politics. So if you have a peasant movement, you will soon have it split in different fraction, factions, one aligned to the PRI, the other one to PRD, you might have one independent one, then you might have a fourth one, and then they all are 
soon becoming integrated into this patron client relationship with po political parties, which is the main problem also for the trade, trade union uh, trade unions in Mexico. The ability of the pre-government and regime to always integrate opposition into the regime, but also by doing that, uh, making sure that all possible structures for uh, opposition become corrupted. The, the teachers movement, the oil workers movement, all these movements that should have been in the forefront of any opposition to the authoritarian government. It failed, because, mainly because of that, in my view. So, so the Zapatistas, simply, not by winning or anything like that, but simply by sticking to the ideas, not giving up, has done some, some very interesting things. And Roy was referring to the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the PRI, which has ruled Mexico for most of its modern history as an independent state, and has this clientelist model, which is relevant right across Latin America, really, clientelismo, that is most successful, perhaps reaches its apogee with the PRI in Mexico, which is a bit like, in a way, Fidel Castro's notion of everybody mm. inside the revolution, mm. nobody outside, nothing outside, everything within, or Derrida's notion of Hi, in the upper the old text, you know, there's nothing outside the text. What it means is almost any opposition gets incorporated and mm. is allowed to be is is allowed to thrive. So I've done a podcast with a Trotskyist poet in Mexico, oh. who in part survives through prizes for poetry given out by the pre. Yeah. <laughs> and his poetry is completely political. Mm. They love it. They mm. couldn't have enough of it. In the Partido Revolucionario Democrático, the PRD that Roy mentioned is the principal leftist alternative. And part of its problem is that it's not really a national party. It doesn't have a truly dem a true demographic scope like the PRI does. It's centered in uh, Mexico City. But it does have very important links in many ways to the Zapatistas, uh, or, try or wants to mm. say that it does. Mm. And let's put it that way, shall yeah. we? And I would also like to have the support of, support of the Zapatistas. Yeah, yeah. And, and I did, at one time in San Andres, one of the communities in Chavez, sort of cooperate with the Zapatistas and did win the election for the, for the municipality. But else, later, um, I think it would be fair to say that in Chavez, the PRD has been terribly disappointed mm. and it's mostly dominated former members of the PRI, Pre, yeah. which has fallen out with the leadership of the PRI, and now are trying to set up shop elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, not, I'm not very optimistic about the PRD, especially because they have this problem of the tribes within the party. They tend to be organized in really strong groups with internal loyalties, supporting each other, independent from any notion of ideology or really political engagement. Right. And we should say that one of the key elements of NAFTA or TCL really got at the life of the peasantry mm. in that it basically, when, it, when you boil it down, became a free ride for the United States to export its massively subsidized agricultural products mm. like soy 
and made it very difficult for the Mexican peasantry often subsidised themselves to continue mm. the life that they had led. And this is why it was not just a reactive movement, but a movement that perceived very intelligently that a way of life was being destroyed. Mm. And the technocratic elite had no idea of what hit them when this revolutionary activity began. Mm. In any event, Roy, this isn't the only part of Latin America where you do work. You're jet-lagged at the moment because you're just back I from am. Nicaragua. Mm. Can you tell us what you were doing there? Uh, this university college has been working... Can you tell us the name of yeah, where we are? It's called Oslo Naukasius University College for Applied Sciences. And it's located in downtown Oslo for uh, quite a few years now, four or five years, we have been in a master's program with the university in Nicaragua called Uracan, which is an indigenous communitarian university on the Atlantic coast. Some of the um, listeners might remember the civil war in Nicaragua. This was the, um, the area worst affected by the civil war and the area where the indigenous peoples sometimes reacted very angrily and violently against the Sandinistas, which is another difficult question for the uh, European left. Uh, just to explain for, the, for anybody listening who's not aware of this, Sandinistas took their name from Sandino, who was a leftist revolutionary hero in Nicaragua from, what, the 20s and 30s, mm. and, of course, toppled the right-wing dictator imposed by the United States, ran Nicaragua under a supposedly revolutionary participatory government until, you know, th through the war with the United, proxy war with the United mm. States conducted through the Contras, funded in part by the US, as part of the Cold War, and then when elections were held, lost office, got back into office, but throughout the time in opposition maintained their political st status in part because they dominated the military. Mm. Very complicated story for mm. the left internationally to understand and accept. And the Sandinistas claimed to have, for example, a cultural policy that would really involve indigenous people mm. and allow them to tell their own stories, kind of opposite of the Maison de Culture policy of the French government mm. domestically. But so just wanted to give some context. Yes. Uh, you might want to add or subtract from that context, but maybe tell us something in particular about this claim by the Sandinistas to mm. understand, represent, be animated by indigenous peoples versus their experience. In 1979, I, I think it's fair to say that the Sandinistas, the leadership of the Sandinistas, were very young, really young guys. And most of them had spent almost all, all their lives at school, at universities, and then on the ground. And they all came from from the 40% um, of Nicaragua, which belongs to the Pacific coast, which speaks Spanish. And almost none of them had any experience with indigenous culture at all. Although there are one or two exceptions from that, which means that they had little direct contact with reality on the Atlantic coast, which is where the African Nicaraguans and the indigenous peoples live. But they did, they did want to do good things for the uh, indigenous people. Mm -hmm. um, so they saw the indigenous peoples as being oppressed 
via regime, and it was their task now as the new leaders in Nicaragua to liberate the, the uh, oppressed indigenous peoples. And basically within such a Marxist-Leninist type of perspective, when we now read the, the uh, uh, communiques from the first meetings after the revolution, it's quite clear that they are at the beginning, at least, were quite Leninist in, in these perspectives. Uh, the problem now was that when they, for instance, declared that land will now belong, or the land which formerly had belonged formerly to the dictator, was now to become state-owned, the indigenous peoples did not fully understand what is the state, what is the state about. This land from the indigenous perspective, this land has belonged to my family and to my people for generations. And here comes someone far away claiming this belongs to something called the state, which was difficult for them to understand, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And then the cultural aspect, the indigenous peoples, um, many places belong to the Moravian church. And some of the cultural traditions would therefore be seen from a Sandinista perspective as quite conservative. So the Sandinistas was not particularly fond of the Moravian church and not of these cultural aspects. Small things, but they generated a conflict that came out of hand. And some of the young leaders of the indigenous peoples, including Rivera, Stedman Fagot, organized protests, which were suppressed, which again meant that they organized more violent type of protests, which were suppressed, and it became a vicious circle, which did not end until the indigenous leadership began to align themselves with the Contras. It did not end with that. That was only the beginning of the real violence. And the Contras are the, were the right-wing opposition, in part funded by the United States, to the and these were, were under the command of former National Guards members, formerly employed by the dictatorship in Nicaragua. So, in my view, the first the, the conflict between the indigenous peoples and the Sandinistas were mainly based on misunderstandings. Misunderstandings. Um, and, but it did last for four or five years, and it was really violent, and also extremely difficult for the, in the global solidarity movement. I remember myself in the 80s, how we struggled, how we tried to understand this. Really difficult. So today, jumping forward to 2014, right, you're involved in a collaboration with this indigenous university. Mm. Tell us about that collaboration and what you were just up to. What we have now is a, a network of indigenous universities in Latin America. I think they now have something like 10 universities as members of the network. One of them is the University of Nicaragua, but they also have universities in Mexico, Guatemala, Colombia, Ecuador, many places, quite a few places. And this network has initiated mm. a master's program, a doctoral program, and established three research groups. And luckily enough for us, we are we have been invited to participate in them, um, perhaps paradoxically because of the historical injustice, which means that we do have some funding available in law, 
Illinois, which they lack in Latin America. But we are we have been invited and we'll plenty of places have funding they're not necessarily invited <coughs> to participate. I think it says some positive things in addition to alluding to the injustice that you rightly mention. Well well hopefully something. Um, something about that too. But we are just about to begin the uh, a large cooperation which will last at least five years, possibly more, and hopefully and at the end, we will have 40 masters, 40 indigenous teachers at the universities with master's degree, five PhD degrees, and also some of those who already have PhDs with some more research experience. And they're all going to focus on communication and journalism. And through your department? Yeah. yeah. So. They won't be doing this in indigenous languages or Norwegian, I imagine. No. They will have to do that <clears throat> mainly in Spanish. And that's paradoxically also the, um, the situation on the Atlantic coast in Nicaragua. The indigenous people speak Miskito, Mayana, Rama. Uh, the African Nicaraguans speak Creole. Garifuna speak, well, not, not much Garifuna, but Creole also. But when they work together, they need to have a common language, and that is Spanish. So that's just how things work. How long are you going to stay? Uh, I'm leaving to, tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. That means that... Um, uh, after we finish this recording, I'm going to teaching. And how long will you stay here? Um, I think I'm teaching till... Well, three maybe, and then I'm not sure what we're doing after this. Runa knows actually. Okay, okay. Because we are this, um, local media with on press freedom, oh, we, will, well. we will have that in May. And the one of the countries that we will look into is the, is the United States. Oh, really? The press freedom. Wow, that's and important. This is one of the students. Oh, and no, I'm totally. <laughs> and and if you have anything to anything wisely to say about the situation of press freedom or something you see in the morning that you think uh, versus being uh, decreased yeah um, it would be interesting to have you on tape for this week oh sure well maybe we could do we could exchange uh, you know do this on email well, and set up a time he, he could yeah so Runa has my email yeah. address mm -hmm. how's that and we can set up something yeah okay that'll be good Sorry. So, apologies, dear listener. One thing I should say, Roy, I don't edit uh, okay. these things. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah. So, for example, I recorded one last year with Jed Novick and Sarah Ayesh about Jed's work in a restaurant, and the people at the next table complained mm. about our recording. Even though we weren't recording them, they couldn't be heard. They were a couple who were having a fight, but one of those silent fights where you don't say anything. <laughs> of course, I never fight, so I wouldn't know, but I've read about it. Uh, so all kinds of things go on. In any event, um, Spanish has to be the lingua franca for these educational initiatives. Mm. That's very exciting, and I imagine you being you, you're already learning a lot from these indigenous intellectuals. Enormous amounts of things. And, and what I really like most is the cosmovision. Uh, um, how do you say that in English? Cosmovision. Cosmopolitan vision. Cosmopolitan vision. But also how they understand the world. 
Um, or cosmology. Cosmology. Would be cosmology would be to understand the yeah. world, you know, the way you see things. Mm. Cosmopolitan vision would be how you have an understanding that transcends your own coordinates mm. and seeks to appreciate, in a kind of gestalt way, the positions of all around you. Mm. And especially when it comes to the, the relationship between the social and the natural, between nature and humans, mm. I think you have an enormous amount of things to learn from from the perspectives of the indigenous peoples, not necessarily romanticizing them, saying that they are more mm. right than mm. us, mm. but just being confronted by a totally different view on the world is in itself extremely valuable. So do you think this could assist, for example, not just, say, environmental journalism, but journalism more generally? Absolutely. Particularly, of course, environmental journalism, but also other forms of journalism. I'm quite, I'm quite sure about that. Um, but we need also to be very careful not to romanticize indigenous mm. peoples mm. in the same way that perhaps the European left did with the Sandinistas and other leftist movements before. And the Zapatistas. Actually. And the Zapatistas. <laughs> Even though I, well, I would like to romanticize the Zapatistas. <laughs> that is. It's very I hard to admit like you want to romanticize something. But yeah. yeah. You well, need something to feel just <laughs> good about. Sure. Sure, and of course I've never romanticised anything. Oh, well, that's <laughs> you. Then. I'm completely immune <laughs> to such temptations. Now, Roy, you've spent a lot of time in Central America. We can almost think of Chiapas as Central America, even though it's mm. technically the end of North America. Can you share with us some of your experiences as a journalist, as an academic, as a researcher, as an activist in the, this region mm. over the decades? Mm. Um, where to begin? That is the difficult thing here. Um, let me talk about disappointment. Disappointment? disappointment. That's a good word to start yeah, with. Let's, yeah. let's begin with disappointment. Because supposedly these areas, this region went through peace processes that mm. ended with the creation of more democratic and more inclusive and more peaceful societies. El Salvador, 91, Guatemala, 96, 97, Nicaragua, just a little bit before that. But what we see now, because of other processes, is even more violent societies. And I think it's necessary to, to re really reflect on why these things are happening. We need to learn from them. For instance, now, the, violent, the level of violence in Guatemala is now worse than during the last years of civil war. The violence after the peace process is worse than just before the peace process. And that calls for some serious reflection. And although I, 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 I really like being in Guatemala in these places, like working there, have good friends, and I like the people, the cultures, the music, the cosmovision, all these things. There are some serious things going on that are being caused by things going on elsewhere. And I'm talking about 
economic policies, drugs, uh, migration, all these things that interconnect us. But they are happening and they are being decided on in Norway and the United States, Putin, without taking these regions into consideration, if you understand what I mean. So that's why I would like to talk about the disappointment. What we are doing here to solve problems we see as important for us are having some really terrible consequences in, in Central America. Are you thinking about drugs in particular? In particular drugs, but not only drugs. And for instance, it's now freedom of movement for capital, mostly all over the world, but especially in NAFTA and also in Central America. Capital can move anywhere. Yeah. Capital is more free than humans. And it can never be like that. When capital is more free than humans to move across borders, you will create problems. Of course, you have the problem of people moving migration without it being legal formally. But all these processes keeps producing new problems and and the sum of all those processes has been extremely negative in Guatemala, El Salvador and Honduras. Mm. The most violent places on earth now. And it needs to be taken seriously. So it's not just about the drugs and drugs trafficking, but it's also about the general um, economic policies, the capitalism, the way that capital can can flow freely across borders. Yeah. And I, I suppose the worst contradiction of capitalism that I can speak of is that labour is never free. It's, it's the one commodity, the one component of yeah. capital yeah. that simply gets anchored, yeah. uh, except when circumstances are right. But by and large, the idea that you can go, you can travel where money travels is absurd. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And Norway is probably a prime example of that paradox, that contradiction. I don't think there's ever been a democratic state before with so much per capita investment, foreign investment, as Norway. Because of the oil, Norway is investing enormous amounts. Mm -hmm. I think what we call the, the pension fund in Norway, which is the official investment fund, foreign investment fund, is one of the largest investment funds in the world. Probably it is the largest or the second largest at the moment. So that fund ten invests all over the world. All over the world. We expect to make business in Indonesia, in Guatemala, in China and Indonesia. Yeah. But if people, labor from those countries, want to travel to Norway, they are not allowed. So there's a fundamental contradiction also within the Norwegian society in the ways we deal with these issues. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And of course, for people listening, say, in Britain, one of the key things about Norway that differentiates it from Britain is that the gift, in inverted commas, of North Sea oil, North Sea gas, etc., was used completely differently here from in Britain. In Britain it was used to fund massive expenditures that weren't funded properly by taxes and to keep services going after privatisation. So essentially it was pissed away by the Conservative Party and then Blair. In Norway, 
it was reinvested in order to become an international economic powerhouse. Yeah. Many places in the world, when I find natural resources, it only leads to conflict, wars, and poverty, violence. Luckily, there, there were a few uh, democratic institutions in place, and also quite strong trade unions in the world. So the handling of the oil resources has been much better, to put it lightly, than, than most places. Very good for relative domestic equality. Mm. Not very good for international economic justice. Not at all. That's Is that we fair have. to say? Yeah. yeah. And that's where yeah. we have this horrible problem of nationalism. Yeah. 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 So you can have, as you say, footloose capital and protectionist immigration policies. At the same time, without most of us seeing any contradiction between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And of course, the United States is a classic example of this. All these countries are. But Norway has avoided the Dutch disease, as it's called or the Gregory thesis, as it's known in economics, namely, wherever there are abundant natural resources, there is minimal adequate investment in other areas because mm. capital flies to these natural resources and countries that have them don't properly develop other ones. Australia at the moment is a classic example of pissing away natural resources that are in high demand. Mm. So, Okay. Um, Getting back to the disappointment, do you see a future? For uh, Central America? Uh, okay, so, so what types of hopes can we see? The first problem we're trying to formulate the hope is that many of those that should be in the forefront, leading right now, are mostly concerned with leading. The dreams are always somewhere else, so mostly in the, in the United States, of course, but also elsewhere. That is a, a great problem. Um, the second problem is that the old class that dominated politics in the area for, for generations, during the, um, the peace accord, the economies were sometimes reconfigured and they were wise enough to move away from, from land, from farming, into other industries. So there are now new forms of uh, um, economic power mm. which will guarantee them the continued dominance over the regions. So there's actually two phenomena that makes it difficult to be very optimistic. The third one is that the underlying problems are being created by decisions taken elsewhere in Norway and the United States about drugs and about free trade and things like that. So there's quite a few things that makes me um, disappointed and this illusion. If I'm going to look somewhere for optimism, it would be to the indigenous peoples indigenous ways of organizing, indigenous militancy, you can, you can see, and who else? <laughs> I can't find anyone else. You can't find anybody else. Roy, you've given us a wonderful story 
that is full of both hope and despair, perhaps in equal measure, but where you still see some possibility for the groups that first inspired you over 20 years ago and that have been so important for a notion of a, an unbureaucratized, non-capitalist imagination for so many people, whether I jokerly refer to it as romanticization mm. or not. I appreciate that very much. And I'm hoping that you'll come back into the pod next time to tell us, A, more about your adventures in this area, but B, more about your adventures in sport. We haven't mm -hmm. had time to talk about that today, but that's another important field of your research. Would you come back to the pod? Absolutely. Lovely. Thank you.